Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Seth Nicholas Johnson. That's right, because uh, Joe McCormick is out on parental leave. Uh, We're happy to uh, inform everyone that he is now the proud father of a baby girl, and the whole family is doing great, Uh, but he's going to take a little time uh, off from the podcast here and will return uh, in really basically no time at all. Uh, Before long at all, Joe will be back and he'll tell us all about his adventures. Yeah, but uh, congratulations to Joe and to his wife and uh, and I guess to to their new child. Congrats. Congrats on being born. Yeah. uh, Young one. (laughs) Well, today's episode is going to be a, a, a volume eight in a continuing series. This is uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind tradition of Anthology of Horror. Um, this ser- in this series, what we do every year is we lay out a, a challenge to ourselves. Uh, in the past, it's been Joe and I, but uh, this year, at, at kind of the, the last minute, Seth was able to jump in and uh, and be a part of it as well. But the, the basic challenge is always go out into the world of TV anthology series, especially horror and sci-fi series, and find something that is not only entertaining, but also raises a question worthy of discussion on the podcast. And sometimes that question might be very ultimately kind of small, maybe not the kind of thing that we would normally tackle certainly as a full-blown episode. Other times it might tie into stuff we've talked about before. Uh, But yeah, kind of just a quirky challenge and something seasonally appropriate for Halloween. 
has it always been television? Have you guys ever done uh, movies or radio or any other kind of anthology bits? I think we dipped into film a little bit because last year or the year before, I picked one off of uh, an anthology film, mm. uh, one that had uh, a killer cat in it. Uh, so, so we have gotten a little bit into, into anthology films, haven't really got into radio. Someday. Someday. There's yeah. plenty of opportunities out there and, and plenty of anthologies. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful format for storytelling. I think it's... Uh, uh, isn't there a new one on Netflix this year from Guillermo del Toro? Yeah. Cabinet yeah, of as, Curiosities, I want to say. Mm-hmm. As of this recording, it's, it's just dropped or some of the episodes have just dropped. So I'll be checking it out tonight. Ditto. Ditto. But oh, but speaking of Netflix, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. But anthology series are an interesting animal because, like you say, there have been so many of them. And every year when it's time to poke around for something to cover and on the anthology of horror series, I'm always just astounded by how much there is, how much – I mean, because there are the big shows that everyone knows. I mean, everyone's familiar with The Twilight Zone mm-hmm. and its multiple – uh, resurgencies. Uh, there's, of course, the classic Outer Limits, and then the 90s Outer Limits, tons of episodes there. But there's so many additional shows that, have, in many cases, have sort of fallen through the cracks of time. And you, th- there were one or two even that I looked up for this show where I'm like, oh, that sounds like a fascinating uh, topic idea. There, were, I think it was, uh, let's see, what was it? Episodes of a show called The Dark Room, hmm. or Dark Room, and I could not find them streaming anywhere. It looks like NBC was streaming them online for a little bit, but are not anymore. Uh, so yeah, there's just a, a lot of stuff out there. And of course, one of the great things and the, um, the, the just quirky things about anthology series is you're always going to have... Uh, ups and downs. You're going to have those really strong episodes with great ideas, uh, and uh, then you're going to have the some some less impressive installments. You're going to have the episodes that clearly got maybe a little more of the lion's share of the budget, and others that were more you know bottle episodes and so forth. But but I love the idea of failure because often failure goes hand in hand with experimentation, and yeah. if you never try to push boundaries, you'll never fail. But you'll never make anything great either. So I, I, I like people swinging for the fences, going big, and sometimes it doesn't work. But at least you tried, you know, and that's that's how you get yeah. good things. Yeah, and it's the, and, and it is the that that uh, varied topography of quality and going for different things, having different creators, different uh, authors involved in a series that that result in you getting the ones that like really uh, uh, match up with your expectations and your and your and your tastes. Uh, you just have to endure the ones that, that don't hit that mark for you personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. So on that note, uh, yeah, we got a couple picked out here today. I picked one out. You picked one out. Uh, in the past, a lot of the episodes of, that we've looked at in the Anthology of Horror series are kind of like a lot of the films featured on Weird House Cinema stem from the 20th century. But the first selection here today, the one I picked out, is not only from the 21st century, it's actually from earlier this year. It is the episode Bad Traveling off of season three of Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. I was actually really excited you picked this because um, typically I'm not a Netflix subscriber. It's just not, you know, I subscribe to other streaming services, but just Netflix isn't one of them. And Mm -hmm. um, I had heard of this and I had seen stuff. And as a big animation fan, I wanted to see it, but it just hadn't come up in my life yet. So this was a great excuse for me to buckle down, turn it on and watch it. And I I was thrilled that this was my first exposure to actually watching an episode of Love, Death and Robots. Yeah, this one I really enjoyed. This is a series that started in 2019. Uh, The principal showrunners are Tim Miller and David Fincher. 
this particular episode directed by David Fincher, but also with Frank Balson, Jerome Dingeen, and Jennifer Yu Nelson. Uh, you know more about the creation of animated uh, material than I do. So I don't, I, uh, it's easier to have that idea in mind, like what does the director of a movie look like? Mm-hmm. You see them sitting in that the, the, the movie director chair and shouting cut and so forth. I, it's harder. I don't have a, an image that I do, can easily go to for what does the director or directors of an animated in- installment or movie look like? I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's it's extremely complicated and really varied from <laughs> not only from project to project, but even within a project. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was uh, a show I was working on. Oh, if folks don't know, I have a background in uh, animation, mostly uh, for television and film. And um, one of the jobs I was doing, I was working on a show called Cake. Okay, it was an it, actually it mm-hmm. was a kind of an anthology. It was a bunch of uh, quick shorts stitched together. Um, kind of liquid television style. This was on FXX, and uh, you can find it on Hulu now. It's a great show. I like Cake. Um, but anyway, one of the shorts that I was the director on went and uh, was uh, clipped out of the show and then submitted to the Sundance Film Festival, where it played, and I was really happy about that and everything. But because I was listed as a director for the television series, that was one distinction. But as soon as it played in theaters, the guy who had created the show had to contact me and be like, hey, Sundance is calling me the director. Can I call you the animation director? And I'm like, I, I don't care. <laughs> Go ahead, buddy. <laughs> and it's and that's the thing. It's that like, there are these like little like distinctions between just just e- even like you know unions and stuff like if this is played on a screen it's different than what if, if it's played on television did you direct the actors did you direct the animators did you just mm. direct everything you know did you direct a storyboard artist which is probably the most important actual like traditional director's a job there is when it comes to animation so so yeah it's it's very um it's varied and also uh there might be four or five different directors based upon whether or not one person actually watched all those different tasks well i've uh i, I very much enjoyed love death and robots uh for the most part with the caveat that it is it is an anthology series so uh, you're going to get those, uh, those those shifts in in overall quality and you know stuff matching up to my tastes or not. Like some of the stuff that they have on the show is maybe a little bit more macho military sci-fi than mm. anything I'm into these days. Uh, some cases the the animation is is very good. Other times the animation is amazing, uh, though amazing animation animation episodes don't always match up with like amazing script episodes. But but that's all right. It's a it's a showcase. It's a spectacle. The animation in this one is amazing, though really beautiful. And um, whenever I see something like this, that's really advanced computer generated animation, I, I often think to myself. If I was somehow able to project this as a film for someone in like the 1930s, 1940s, what would they think it is? Like, would mm-hmm. they think that these are just like odd, oddly shaped actors? Would would they realize that, yes, it is animation, but they would have no idea how it was made? Would they just dismiss it as like, oh, this must be like the next new rotoscoping technique and that's it? They don't think that it's actually as advanced as it truly is? It's 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 just an odd experiment I can never really get my head around. Yeah, yeah, because for most of us, we've 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 grown up watching at least some of it play out. Like we've seen, uh, if you were old enough to to see the first Toy Story, like you've you've been around for a, a certain degree of the evolution of computer generated imagery right. and computer generated animation. Uh, but yeah, like with um, 
uh, uh, younger viewers, you've just you're just born into it, and like <laughs> here it is. And then yeah, how would how would people in older generations have responded to this? So each season has had its uh, its its episodes that stand out to me. Um, there were a couple of Joe Lansdale adaptations in season one, I believe. Uh, the dump and the tall grass. That might have been in season one and season two. There's an episode uh, titled the, the Drowned Giant. There's a funny one t- titled The Automated Customer Service. So, yeah, some of the episodes lean more funny. Other episodes get really serious, almost too serious. And, and some are more just like pure artful spectacle. Now, Bad Traveling is based on a story by contemporary English author Neil Asher, who I've, I've never read, but I recognized his name from various sci-fi titles that I'd, I'd seen online or in bookstores. There's another episode in this series based on one of his stories, Mason's Rats, that's also quite good, also a highlight from season three. Uh, but while that one is funny, Bad Traveling is quite serious, quite grim. Um, and uh, if you need any further evidence of that, uh, Andrew Kevin Walker of Seven fame wrote the screenplay for it. That's nice that uh, uh, we got a nice little reunion then, since uh, Fincher yeah. was directing. Yeah. Yeah. It features the voice talents of Troy Baker, Jason Fleming, uh, and, uh, and and numerous others. And I believe Blur Studios was the principal animation studio on this one, but Tacit Sign Studio is also credited. Anyway, the, the setting of the story is a fantasy twist on the age of sails and the age of, uh, of big ships, uh, with a crew of sailors braving an alien ocean, hunting for something called a javel shark, I believe. There's some, some sort of a large, fierce sea creature that they're out there hunting, and later on, it's revealed that they're hunting them for oil. Uh, ships are often lost in this, uh, in this pursuit. And they often, and in doing so, they experience what's called bad traveling. That's the sailor slang for a bad voyage. And so, of course, our story is going to involve some bad traveling. Uh, the ship in our story encounters a, a terrible storm and is quickly boarded by a monstrous giant crab called a thanapod, which, ta- which kills multiple crew members, takes up residence below deck, and uh, uh, lots are then drawn, drawn among the crew see who's going to go down and deal with the monster. And this character, Torin, winds up with the duty. Now, this is where the plot gets clever. The Thanapod, we learn, is not just a a big monstrous crab. Uh, It also can use the bodies of human dead to speak. So there's this grotesque scene where it picks up uh, I think just like the, the like the upper half of a dead sailor and begins to speak through its mouth in a, in like a garbled dead man's voice and uh, and this is kind of a nice t- uh, twist that also seems to channel Attack of the Crab Monsters in a fun way. Uh, it also reminded me of that scene from uh, uh, the film Independence Day where uh, Brent Spiner playing a scientist gets captured by one of the uh, uh, aliens and is also used in a very similar way, like a little puppet to communicate to the humans what they're actually here for, what they want. You know, it's a, that's right. It's, it's, it's a beautiful little, uh, little tool, you know, it makes perfect sense. And it kind of gives you kind of that logic of the uh, Babelfish or I guess Babelfish, Mm -hmm. depending on how you pronounce it from the uh, Hitchhiker series. Yeah. 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 I hadn't thought of those connections, but yeah, totally. So this twist also changes things a bit because suddenly the Thanapod is in a position to lay out what it wants, to make demands, and Torin is actually in a position to make a deal with the monster. So the Thanapod says, okay, I want you to sail me 
to Faden Island, which we're told is a, a heavily populated island. And if we, we don't have to really guess at what a monster like this wants with a heavily populated island. It clearly wants to eat a bunch of people. Clearly it's a bad thing. Uh, but the Thanapod's making the, this offer, and uh, Torin is listening to it, and they, they kind of come to terms. Okay, he'll do this in exchange for his own life, so you, you're not allowed to eat me, Thanapod. And also, I need uh, the key that was in the captain's pocket, um, the captain that you just ate. And so the Thanapod, like, barfs up some remnants of the captain, and uh, he gets the key, which he uses to unlock the captain's pistol— and he then he uses the pistol, which I believe is the only pistol on the ship, to claim control over the ship, uh, to sort of put the uh, mutinous uh, other crew members in check, at least for the time being. But then he puts the, the question to the crew, puts it to a vote even. What are we going to do? There's this monster in the hold of the ship that wants to go to a heavily populated island and, and do, you know, God knows what, but probably eat people. Uh, what should we do? Should we say, should we agree to this? And yes, deliver the Thanapod to Faden? Or should we instead drop it off at a nearby deserted island? So there's a great deal of turmoil over this. Some crew members, maybe more than a few, simply want to give the monster what it wants. Meanwhile, it becomes clear that the monster uh, has uh, even more ravenous uh, ideas in mind. The monster is clearly apparent now, and the depths of the ship are soon crawling with these uh, pallid crablings that look a lot like um, like the, the sorts of crabs you'd find uh, living around uh, deep-sea thermal vents. And I'm not going to spoil how things turn out, uh, but it's a, it's a fun action horror ride. The central monster, the Thanapod, is a real grotesque treat. And uh, yeah, you're left uh, trying to, to figure out wh- where it's going to land. Uh, essentially, who's going to win? Is it going to be this, this monster or is it going to be the humans? And it, or is Torin or any of the other uh, crew members going to be able to stand up and, uh, and, and, and prevent some horrible fate falling on the unsuspecting people of Faden Island? It's also got a lot of really fun kind of like uh, logic, deductive twists happening from people Mm -hmm. to people. It reminds me of like kind of like those like old um, riddles where it's like, hey, uh, someone stole these pastries. Everyone make sure they handle this coin and put it in the bucket of water and we'll figure out who the liar is. (laughs) Like it's, It's got some real like, hey, we have to figure out a way not only to cope with this monster, but cope with one another. Let's use some logic. Let's use some planning to kind of try and figure that out. And it's, uh, yeah, it just it just unfolds beautifully. It looks beautiful. The story's fun. The the science fiction, speculative fiction elements are a lot of fun. It's it's great all around. Yeah, and I can easily recommend this one as a as a first Love Death Robots episode to watch for anyone out there who hasn't checked out the show because, like I say, some of the episodes skew a little bit dark uh, for my taste. Uh, and some are more humorous, and I feel like this one is is a serious piece, but also a good balance of of darkness. Yeah, the the only kind of like um, caveat I'd give anyone is that it's it's quite gory, but uh, yeah. it is cartoon gore. So you know, I, I, it, I guess that that's left up to the viewer and their own kind of understanding of themselves. But uh, yeah, the worst thing you're going to have to deal with is uh, a lot of blood and guts, cartoon blood and guts, but blood and guts. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray 
to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. 
No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, when it comes to the the science of this episode, uh, I, I think the interesting science angle on bad traveling is that what we have here is a tale of a devastating, invasive, ship-borne organism. And this whole scenario serves as kind of a fantastic exaggeration of the very real history and present reality of ship-borne invasive species. Uh, there are multiple avenues by which invasive species, and that includes plant species and animal species, have been and are still being spread through human activities. These, as outlined in 2018's Animals and Human Society by Colin G. Skeynes and Samia R. Uh, Tuxadi, include species introduced for aesthetics, uh, as game species for biological control and for fur, as populations um, of feral domestic animals, as pets thoughtlessly released into the wild, and of course, animal and plant stowaways. Uh, and while these also occur via airplane, uh, uh, one of the, 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 the main examples throughout human history, one of the big ones has of course been ships, the holds of ships, the insides of ships, but also the, the outsides of ships. Um, now, um, with, uh, with, with airplanes though, uh, they include a specific example of the brown tree snake, um, and this is essentially the, the snake on a plane par excellence. <laughs> so th this particular snake is native to eastern and northern coastal Australia, uh, eastern Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and many, many islands in northwestern Melanesia. But uh, the brown tree snake is only mildly venomous to humans, but its venom is apparently 100 times more toxic to birds than to mammals, according to biologist Brian Fry of the University of Queensland. The brown snake has been particularly uh, rough on the bird population of Guam, which had apparently reached aboard Australian troop transports during the Second World War. Fry also points out that the, the United States was, and I believe still is, flying military planes from Guam to Hawaii, and brown snakes have been intercepted at Hawaiian airports in the past, so the potential is there for plane-based introduction of this species to the Hawaiian islands as well, if we were to say let our guard down. Now, I wasn't able to find anything offhand that uh, that really explained like how how are they hitching up, hitching rides on these planes, uh, but one reason might have to do with the fact that they use something called lasso locomotion, which allows them to easily climb large, smooth cylinders. So. It sounds to me like one possibility here is that this is a snake that is just exceptionally good uh, at crawling on and perhaps into airplanes uh, and, uh, and is, of course, a, a curious uh, creature on top of that. But when we're talking about animal stowaways, uh, especially, ships, again, play a huge role. With rats and mice standing out as, as probably one of the best and most destructive examples of creatures that have spread uh, with humans to every continent except Antarctica, where I believe the only invasive species currently is a variety of mussel, and these likely travel there by ship as well. I'm surprised Antarctica has one too, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah most things are, that, that we bring with us are not going to be able to get a foothold there, but uh, mussels seem to be the current exception. Hmm. 
Now, when we're thinking about stowaway species, we're often thinking about creatures that sneak aboard or are accidentally included in or on a ship and then introduced to a destination or stop upon the way. Uh, So the, the mouse rat example isn't the only template, though. According to Grasping at the Roots of Biological Invasions by Hulm et al. from the Journal of Applied Ecology in 2008, quote, stowaways include organisms that foul the hulls of ships, are transported as seeds or resting stages in soil attached to vehicles and in the ballast water, as well as in shipping containers, cargo, and air freight. So, for instance, as the authors point out, uh, the brown, uh, the, there's a variety of brown seaweed, sargasm uh, miticum, and this is a great example of a stowaway species thought to have spread from its native Japan to northern France, uh, the English South Coast, and to the Netherlands via first the, con- the contamination of commercial oyster shipments, but then just via drifting plants once they, were, uh, they had made it uh, basically to the other side of the world. The authors here also share that that, uh, vessels provide numerous interior and exterior possibilities for species to to, to spread. You know, oftentimes you're dealing with a big ship. You have a lot of, uh, literally a lot of moving parts, uh, lots of nooks and crannies, lots of different, uh, say, you know, examples of cargo that are being brought aboard, human beings brought aboard. But one of the most pervasive uh, avenues by which a creature might stow away, particularly as it applies to aquatic species, is that they foul the holes um, of boats and ships. Quote, a detailed survey of alien species introduced by shipping into the North Sea region revealed that stowaways, mainly crustaceans and bivalves, were found in 96% of hull samples, but in only 38% and 57% of ballast water and sediment, respectively. And then they cite a study by uh, Golosh from uh, 2002. So species need not climb inside the hole to use it as a means of traversing uh, from one far-flung island to another or from one continent to another. They only have to affix to the outside of the vessel, uh, which is you know, ultimately this artificial island that's going to drift rather steadily from one place to another. Now, uh, another animal that, that comes up, though, in, uh, in these uh, uh, discussions of, of stowaway creatures, uh, arboreal monkeys have also been known uh, to spread to various places as invasive species. And while there are accounts of monkeys taking up residence in ship's rigging, it seems like most of these introductions were via monkeys kept as pets. Uh, but still, there have been accounts, even from this century, of monkeys stowing away on vessels, such as a 2014 report of monkeys who boarded um, a, a cargo vessel in Malaysia and then arrived in the Netherlands. Now, I think in this case, the monkeys were caught and caged in transit and then uh, handed over to, uh, in the Netherlands uh, to um, uh, I think some zoo officials once they arrived. Uh, one of the challenges to stowing away is, of course, being able to survive a lengthy sea voyage in often harsh conditions without any kind of dependable food sources. And this, of course, brings us back to rats and mice, because rats and mice have, of course, excelled at this because they're great at not being seen. They're also great at finding food to eat. And so they're, they're just highly skilled at living in humanity's shadow, be that shadow on land or on a ship at sea. 
and there are plenty of other great examples uh, or, or horrible examples of invasive <laughs> species uh, uh, using ships as an avenue to spread to new places. And invasive earthworms are a great example, spreading via transported soils and plants. Uh, birds can also stow away. I was reading in a book uh, on, on house sparrows about how the house sparrow is thought to have spread aboard Roman ships, and this is how it supposedly reached Great Britain. So in the real world, we don't have anything quite like the thanopod that's, uh, that, that's you know, fighting. It's a giant creature that fights its way aboard a ship and then demands that it be taken somewhere else. That has like a willful intention of, of spreading to a known distant um, destination. But, uh, I mean, on the other hand, uh, this is, these are, any of these uh, real-world examples we're looking at, these are creatures that are following their genetic imper imperatives. Uh, they're taking full advantage of new environments uh, they might, and that might, they might never have reached otherwise. And it's, and it's also not completely without uh, an analog in like the non-human world. Cause of course you have, uh, n natural rafts that occur, uh, here and there, uh, through history that are thought to have been the way that, that certain animals spread, say to distant far-flung islands or, or even from, from a l large body to another large body. And so, you know, they're not, it's not like the animals are doing anything, uh, sinister as our thanopod is doing something sinister. Uh, they're just taking advantage of their environment or they're to a sense being they're in a sense being taken advantage of by their environment, accidentally becoming stowaways, accidentally being cast on a ship and then cast on a foreign shore. It, it is fascinating to think about uh, this natural migration of beings compared with, um, you know, human influenced migration, like, like, like even all the way down to things like, oh, uh, um, berries, you know, where mm -hmm. like uh, us as humans, one of the ways that the berry seeds move is we will consume them. They pass through our, our intestines and boom, you know, the, these plants have now moved their seeds from one location to another by our aid, you know, or, or other animals, yeah. of course. But then you just add something as simple as, oh, we invented the wagon. Oh, now we can go further. Oh, now these berries yeah. can go further. Oh, now we've invented the ship. Now we've invented whatever, you know, uh, now we've invented the airplane. Now we've invented the rocket ship. Now we have brought raspberry seeds to Mars. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, like yeah. just these like little, little things that we're doing. And not in every case, it's not a bad thing. I'm sure in many cases, this migration of species, whether they be plant or animal, is a good thing, but both for our, you know, existence as, as humans, but also... Uh, for their own ability to thrive, but the hard part is let's let's go back to this uh, this crab, this giant, you know, semi sentient. Well, I, I guess it's 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 fully sentient. It's um monstrous. Let's just go with monster crab. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let's go with this monster crab. Perhaps wherever its original location is, where its species evolved. There was some sort of predator that kept it in check. There was some sort of environment that kept it in check. Everything was fine. But as soon as we get that giant monster crab on a boat, we put it in an area where the, that other element isn't there. And it can just, you know, <laughs> take our bodies and use them as puppets. It's, it's odd. Yeah, no, th th these are great points. Because, yeah, yeah, cl clearly in the case of especially seed spreading, but also parasites and, and other examples like traveling via another organism's movement is just a, an, an evolved tactic that you'll find in, in various organisms. It's just that human technology and human activity exaggerates everything and it creates radically new avenues that can then be exploited by the animal as it would exploit any, any uh, environment that it could actually gain a, uh, gain a uh, like a claw hold in. If you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we, we just have to keep an eye on it, you know? <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's good. Usually it's bad. Keep an eye on it. So that, that's that's my selection and uh, science tie-in for this anthology of horror episode. But I'm very excited about about your selection, mm-hmm. Seth, because yeah, this is a this comes from a series that we haven't covered on the show before, and I had not watched any of these episodes uh, until this year. I, I watched uh, two or three of them. Yes, this is from Tales of the Unexpected. Uh, I'm guessing most people probably haven't heard about this. Maybe if you're uh, British, perhaps you've heard of it more, but. Um, First of all, let's dumb things real down for, for Americans here. Raul Dahl, of course, a very famous author. We all know Raul Dahl. He wrote all kinds of super famous books. Uh, Matilda, The Witches, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach. I can go on and on and on. Uh, mm-hmm. Super famous for his children's literature. What we in America aren't as familiar with, he had many adult fiction uh, pieces out in the world, too. Uh, dozens and dozens of short stories and and one novel as well. and. Maybe maybe it's me, but I just feel like Americans didn't really get as much exposure to these these adult pieces by Raul Dahl. I think most Americans just view him as just a children's author. So well, what happened for me in particular was um, I was cruising around. I think this was on Amazon Prime originally. I came across this show, and, and because, you know, uh, like all of us here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we appreciate the strange and the uncanny and the macabre. So I was like, oh, Tales of the Unexpected. That sounds fun. What's that? So I turn mm-hmm. it on. And, and immediately you're you're greeted with Raul Dahl uh, sitting in like a, a, a little like leather easy chair, you know, like like with like a, a writing desk on his lap in front of a roaring fire, explaining where this story came from. And so immediately I look it up, and it turns out yes, Raul Dahl has an enormous library of adult fiction, and uh, this series is primarily based on these short stories that he wrote, and it it, it it's fascinating. Um, I think they try to convince you initially that hey, this isn't for children because these opening credits—they're they're they're gorgeous <laughs> and they're strange. Uh, how would you describe them, Rob? It's kind of like um, kind of a James Bond casino vibe, but a casino where the back room is filled with creepy masks and haunted artifacts. Yeah, they show you skulls. They show you guns. Mm-hmm. They they show the silhouette of I, I assume what they're trying to imply is a nude woman dancing. Um, it, it's it's yeah, they're they're showing you like adult material to go not for children, not for children, not for children. <laughs> and uh, now, now to be clear, the content itself, at least based on the the couple episodes I watched. Uh, is is nothing so extreme, at least to modern viewers. Uh, in, in fact, it, the, some of the content I watched was actually quite tame, yes. like surprisingly tame. <laughs> but but yeah, that that intro seems to be saying, "Kids, you should be in bed. Get in bed before cre- creepy Uncle Daw comes out and starts talking at you." Uh, I, I can say that um, when I first discovered these books that this show is based on, and I read them all, uh, Raul Dahl does get pretty extreme. He has okay. um, not only some some real violence. But more than that, he just gets very inappropriate in places. Like, um, mm. I think he's perhaps intentionally being uh, offensive for for the sake of literature. Oh, okay. But but it's in there. Uh, especially there 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 are okay. some elements uh, relating to um, I don't know dynamics between men and women that are just dreadful. So mm. so you know just just be aware that uh, if you do explore the adult writings of Raul Dahl, th- there's some inappropriate stuff in there for sure. But anyway. That, what we're what we're addressing today is a very specific episode. Uh, this one is called Royal Jelly. It's the first episode of the season two of Tales of the Unexpected. This originally aired on March first, nineteen eighty. 
Uh, let's see. It was directed by Herbert Wise. He's probably best known for directing the I, Claudius miniseries from 1976. And, uh, of course, this is based on the story Royal Jelly by Roald Dahl from his 1960 collection of adult short stories called Kiss Kiss. And um, I, I guess we've already briefly discussed who Roald Dahl is. Y'all get it. He, he's super popular, super famous, best-selling uh, wrote amazing children's literature and some adult literature, too, that is less well-known, at least here in America. Um, now, this has uh, been adapted for television by Robin Chapman. Uh, he was an actor and a writer who contributed to dozens of projects from the 60s and 90s. Uh, most of them are British, so when I look at his IMDb charts and stuff, I don't know most of them, but t- there's tons of it. So clearly, he's been very involved and uh, very prolific. And uh, there's um, a very limited cast in this. It feels a lot like kind of like a stage play. And so we only have three actors in this story, four if you count the baby. But uh, we have Timothy West, who plays Albert Taylor, a beekeeper and our protagonist. We have Susan George, uh, his wife, who has recently given birth to a child. And and she's very fraught, very worried for most of the story. We then have Andrew Ray, who plays someone named Percy Hayward, appears very briefly as a television presenter. And uh, then we have a baby who is uncredited. And of course, we have the Roald Dahl introduction where he, of course, plays himself and tells us a little story about where the story came from. Well, that that intro, really, I, I've been just almost alarmed by the intros that have Dahl in them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically serving as like the crypt keeper of these these shows. But also, I guess it's comparable to like Ray Bradbury Theater mm-hmm. that we had in the, the States. And I guess part of this, again, it's I'm coming at it from the American standpoint where I just knew him as the name that was attached to stuff like Willy Wonka. Right. I wasn't exposed to these other stories, and I wasn't exposed to him as a as a person, as a, as like a a person on the on the TV screen that would be talking to me. And there's something about these intros, like they're a little bit creepy, and I don't know to what extent they're intentionally creepy. <laughs> yeah. Because he's he's in that little desk by the fire chatting to you but he has this i don't know i get kind of a creepy vibe off of him and there are also a lot of sort of offhand comments about either how rich or famous he is yeah Um, yeah Uh, in fact one of the so in this introduction for this episode he's sitting there and he's talking about how uh when he was in america he was walking around and this is the origin of, of his story. This is why he wrote the story in the first place. He saw a jar of royal jelly in like a fancy boutique's shop window, and it was just ludicrously expensive. And he thought, wow, mm-hmm. like, what is this? Why is this? Like, what's happening here? And so he wrote this story all about like its effects when he did like research and stuff. And then once it was published, uh, his friend Dick Van Dyke <laughs> sent him a package, which was several bottles of this royal jelly. Um, now, I believe Raul Dahl wrote the screenplay for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So I'm guessing that's how they mm-hmm. became friends. But Oh, that would be. That would yeah. Be it. yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, I guess you'll you'll find out when, when we tell you more about this story. But it, it was uh, very strange that the first thing that Raul Dahl did when he received this these bottles of royal jelly is he drank them all down. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was his initial reaction. And um, w- with that, I think... Like you were saying, is this supposed to be creepy? Is this supposed to be funny? It kind of reminded me of the introductions that Alfred Hitchcock used to do on Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. Ah, yes. Where it is like, it's leaning into the macabre a bit, but also trying to be kind of like, you know, like, oh, I'm, a, I'm your friendly uncle, but I'm also going to make some macabre jokes in here too. Like, that's 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 the vibe I was getting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and there is, and there's also very much a, a dry British wit to it as well. Yeah, yeah.
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, but let, let's let's begin this story. So, like I said, uh, Albert Taylor is our primary protagonist here. Uh, the, the, this uh, episode begins with Albert Taylor. He's an uh, apiculturist, aka a beekeeper, and we see him wandering amongst the hives on his uh, on his property and uh, lovingly examining them and and, and just being being a friend to the bees. You know, it, it all seems ve- very pleasant and and fun and kind of like pastoral. It seems great. Yeah, and and again, Timothy West in this role, he, he, tremendous actor that's been in tons of things, uh, like a lot of theater work as well. He's one of these guys where if you've watched any amount of British TV or film, you've likely seen him at one point or another. He is still active today, 142 IMDb credits, and he's been active since 1959. And then uh, we soon meet our second and pretty much only other actor in this. Uh, uh, Albert walks inside and he sees his wife and their newborn child. And um, this is Mabel Taylor, the character. She is having a terrible time trying to get their daughter to just have some milk, have some food, you know? Uh, She's very, very worried that the daughter is malnourished, that she isn't eating, and that basically she's just losing weight, that she's not doing what babies should be doing. Uh, They've checked with all the doctors. All the doctors say, no, 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 she's fine. Just give her time. She'll come around. But but this mother is just, you know, at her wit's end. She's very, very worried about this baby. And uh, the, the actor here, Susan George, uh, also a pretty big name for the, the time period. She was in such films as 71 Straw Dogs, 1981's Enter the Ninja. She was also in 1981's Venom. This was the killer snake movie with Klaus Kinski in it that uh, uh, we covered on Weird House Cinema. <laughs> Uh, so Albert is very excited. He sits down and uh, he he's about to be on television. You know, he was interviewed by a local newscaster. They were doing a little story on him with his bees. So so, so he's like, you know what? I'm going to watch me on television. He's kind of ignoring his wife, kind of <laughs> ignoring his child. He's like, no, no, I'm on TV. Let's watch. Let's watch. The wife's like, no. And she gets the baby and she leaves. So he sits down. He's watching himself be interviewed and uh, talk about his bees, talk about his hives, talk about his honey. And um, he kind of, uh, the the television interviewer kind of asks him all these questions that start to give him in real time, watching himself, these ideas, particularly about royal jelly. On the show, he describes royal jelly as this substance. It's it's like a nutrient-dense food that you give to bee larvae, but it's so powerful that it's only given to the worker larvae and uh, drone larvae for just three days. Uh, however, the queen larvae, they get just an unending supply of this throughout their entire de- developmental period, and uh, thus their increased size and v- development changes and all that stuff, but we'll get more into that into the science. So, so this this sparks an idea in his head, and he goes, "Why didn't I think of this sooner?" You know, and that's that's yeah. all we see for now. Now, for Futurama fans out there, you might remember uh, the episode where we find out where slurm comes from. Yes, uh, the popular soda slurm. We find out that it is essentially the uh, that it come it, it is a, a product of these alien bee like creatures, and then there is royal slurm, which is essentially the alien equivalent of uh, of royal jelly. Yes great episode (laughs) um so uh the baby is suddenly uh eating better 
putting on weight. Uh, Albert has, has told his wife, Mabel, hey, I'm going to handle all the baby's feedings from now on. Don't you worry. I got this. Yeah. And she's <laughs> exhausted. So she's she's happy for the help. Absolutely. And uh, this is, you know, pretty obvious, but uh, uh, Albert has been putting royal jelly into the baby's milk. I would say uh, spoilers from now on, but there's really no ending to this. So <laughs> there are there's nothing really to spoil. Uh, yes, Albert has been putting royal jelly in the baby's milk, and he's deliberately hiding it from his wife. So um, Mabel puts two and two together. She figures out that something is being added to his daughter's milk. She first suspects beer, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, no, no, Albert reveals that he has been feeding royal jelly to their daughter. Um, and, and she's aghast. And she's like, no, no, I'm very worried about this. You know, should you be doing this? This seems bad. And he's like, no, no, it's no big deal. I've been consuming gallons of it for years. <laughs> in, in, specifically... He's been taking it uh, before the baby was born to make him more fertile and virile. And he gives the royal jelly the, the, all, all the credit for uh, uh, making uh, him, him uh, fertile enough for them to have their child. So he's like, this, this child is thanks to the royal jelly. My, my virality, this, this is all thanks to the jelly. It's all the royal jelly. And, and so here's my favorite part of this. My favorite part of this, when he's starting to like, go into his like reveal of all, all all what he's been doing and sneaking the royal jelly into the into the baby's milk consuming gallons of it himself he starts to ever so slowly ever so like you know delicately make little buzzing noises mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> like just little conversational like so what is this? this is, just like a little, yeah. just a little, little extra buzz now and again, and it just kind of builds and builds till by the end he is just full blown buzzing, buzzing. And we look down at his collar, uh, uh, or yeah, his um, his cuff of his shirt, and he's mm-hmm. got little bee hair just kind of like tufting out through like the, yeah. the the cuff of his shirt, and it's so wonderful. And the the wife's getting very scared; she doesn't know what to do about this. He's like, no, 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 it's wonderful. And then he picks up the baby. And they turn towards the camera, and it's one of those like really corny uh, uh, freeze frame, super effects filled zoom in shots mm-hmm. on the baby, where it's supposed to be like, oh no, the baby's a larva or something. I, it's never, yeah. it's, not, it's not made clear at all. Yeah, you can't really see the baby all that well, but it's like a sudden, like kind of blurry graphic or pixely graphic effect. I don't know. The baby maybe looks like the baby on that Black Sabbath uh, album cover or something, <laughs> yeah. except more bee-like. Right. Um, but 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 it's it's so sudden, and then uh, her scream is such like I don't know. The tension builds just right to where even though the uh, the actual effects are, are basically non-existent yeah. in the scene. Yeah. It's still shocking, and it's still like it still kind of hits you at the very end. It's like, oh god, this this is horrible. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a perfect little like horror anthology punchline. Just and that's it. <laughs> you, nothing else to see, folks. Move on. <laughs> yeah this this was a solid ending. This was far more solid than the the episode that the other episode I watched was one I think it was called Taste about a wine snob mm. who essentially he ends up getting into a competition if he can guess the precise winery that a wine came from he get he he is going to get to marry the other guy's daughter so it does have like creepy uh, misogynistic um, uh, notes to it but it doesn't end in anything horrible at the end he's caught cheating 
at the game and gets wine poured on his head. So when I saw that, I'm like, well, I don't know if any of these are really going to be horror enough. But right. you assured me. It's like, oh, no, no, this episode has it. And yeah, implied mutant bee baby definitely <laughs> uh, seals the deal. Uh, if you read the story, it's um, even more subtle and implied. Uh, more, more or less the, the written word and this uh, you know television uh, adaptation are very similar. The only difference is, of course, like the internal monologue that you kind of hear from people. In particular, you can hear Mabel thinking to herself, does my husband look more like a bee today? <laughs> you, you can hear her like at, in the very end being like, oh no, my child is turning into a larva. I can see the larva elements of my child. It's all very internal thought. It's not like, you know, monster makeup, which which would have been fun too, but definitely a different kind of story. <laughs> Are there lots of Z's uh, in, in his dialogue at the end? I believe so. It's been a while since okay. I've read it, but I believe so. <laughs> Little subtle buzzes. <laughs> uh, so, so let's get into some science. The first thing I was thinking to myself, and I, I, I this is just like, you know, one of those things. I was like, wait, isn't honey bad for babies? I know honey isn't royal jelly, but I've heard very clearly that you should not give honey to babies. So I looked that up real quick just to like put my mind at ease. And yes. It is widely agreed upon by nutritionalists and pediatricians that babies younger than one year old should not be given honey. Uh, basically, it's as simple as an infant's immune system isn't yet strong enough to fight some of the bacteria that a, a non-infant, anyone above the age of one, can easily handle. Uh, specifically, it's Clostridium bacteria, which can cause uh, infant botulism. So, you know, terrible. And this bacteria uh, thrives in soil and dust, which means it can contaminate certain foods, and in particular, honey. So, uh, uh, you know, the, by the way, this also includes any processed foods that use honey, like uh, honey graham crackers, etc. And uh, once again, there's no risk for an immune system over a year old. But I, I, I satisfied my curiosity by just looking that up real quick. And I was correct. Do not give honey to anyone under one year of age. But like I said, honey is not royal jelly. What, what, what's the difference between honey and royal jelly? Yes, you find them both in, in a hive, but there's obviously big differences. Let's start with honey. Uh, honey, as we all know, is a sweet, viscous liquid made up of nectar from flowers by the way of a multi-step process involving multiple honeybees. Uh, it's primarily used to feed the colony. Uh, this is their primary source of carbohydrates, and it also provides basically just all of the energy that the colony needs to go out and find pollen, to to breed, to whatever. All that stuff is, is fueled by honey, and in particular, their carbohydrates from the honey. Uh, I, as an aside, I was also looking up, um, I, I don't know about you, Rob, but um, I, I have the notion in the back of my head that I would love to be a beekeeper someday. Like, like, like <laughs> I, I have ambitions to be a, um, a, an apiculturist at some point in my life. And so I, I've looked this up in the past to be like, wait, if we're taking the bees honey, don't they need that honey? Like that's theirs, right? And that's part of being a beekeeper is knowing where that, that level is. If you do take mm. too much of the bees honey that they're providing for, for, for their, their beehive, then yes, you, you can starve a colony and you shouldn't do that. You have to be very careful and, and, and very mindful of how much you're taking from them. So anyway, that's just an aside. <laughs> yeah, my understanding is that uh, with the, the sorts of the varieties of bees that one is going to be raising, yeah, there is a, a, a certain surplus level that you can harvest. But there are other varieties of bees that we don't raise for their honey that don't produce that sort of surplus. Yeah. Um, but but I, I agree with you. Like even watching this episode of Tales of the Unexpected, the early parts 
before things get creepy. Uh, you see him out there, you know, uh, tending to his hives. And then there's a great scene in it, too, where it, it's the actor himself just out in a, a field among uh, actual beehives. And without any protective gear, he's opening one up and checking things out. And uh, that scene in particular, it, it made me feel what you were talking about. It's like, I could do this, right? Yeah. right? I could... Well, I could retire and and just raise bees in a field. This this feels appropriate. This feels like like something worth doing. Someday I'm going to do this. Someday I've looked into it. I've looked into how much it costs for like you know buying a colony. How much it costs to like buy a bee suit. I have a uh, lavender garden here on my property that's nothing mm-hmm. but a, a field of lavender, and I I I think that will be make my honey. It will I will have lavender flavored honey. That's going to be my goal someday. <laughs> <laughs> but but like we said, royal jelly is not uh, honey at all. Uh, royal jelly is a milk-like substance which is secreted from the glands and the heads of the worker bees, and it's made to feed the bee larvae. So, uh, And this includes all of the larvae, the drones, the workers, the queens. Um, and, and just like it was actually mentioned in the story, this was 100% accurate from the story. The drones and workers are only fed for three days with royal jelly, but the queen it just is continually fed uh, uh, just all the royal jelly you can have uh, throughout their whole development process. So facts. <laughs> Roald Dahl looked this up and it's absolutely true. So up to that point in the story, the, the, these are facts that Roald Dahl is giving us. Uh, royal jelly is composed of about 67% water, uh, 12.5% protein, 11% simple sugars, 6% fatty acids, and uh, uh, 3.5% 10-hydroxy-2-desinoic acid. Uh, there are also some trace minerals, vitamins, and uh, antibiotic uh, components that uh, other people have, of course, claimed also in this short story that are very beneficial for you. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the nutritional input truly does have an effect from this royal jelly onto the larvae. And it's actually really fascinating because this isn't super common amongst species. A worker larva and a queen larva are identical from a DNA standpoint. There is no difference between a uh, a worker and a queen in at their larval stage. But because the queen larva is given more nutrients by way of royal jelly, the queen has a completely different developmental trajectory. Uh, most importantly, the queen develops large active ovaries while the worker bees, they, they are completely sterile. They, they have no ability to, to, to use their ovaries for anything. And it's, 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 it's not common. I was trying to find up other species that have this, this, this process where basically you can almost turn into not a different creature, but like a different kind of being just basically on did you get extra nutrients when you were a child. And it, it, it's not a common thing, but it's, it's 100% true with royal jelly and these bee larvae. Yeah, it reminds it reminds me of various morphs that you find, say, among uh, some species of salamanders, where there'll be mm. certain environmental factors that may include things like um, like density of population or exposure to water that um, that can result in different morphologies. Uh, particularly, a, a one ver- I want to say I may be misremembering this, but I think it's the uh, tiger salamander uh, that uh, can develop a cannibal morph. Where basically there's there's one salamander with an extra big mouth for eating other salamanders because it's responding to the, there being too high of a population density uh, versus available water or something to that effect. But yeah, in terms of, of this though, it's just like you got more of the special food than everyone else, and so now you are destined to be this uh, this, this high producing reproductive morph uh, as opposed to a normal worker. Yeah. 
Oh, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, as this story implies, and uh, also from just Roald Dahl's, um, you know, introduction where he was given jars of the stuff by by Dick Van Dyke, um, humans do consume royal jelly for a, a wide variety of uh, purposes and claims. Uh, primarily, when I was looking this up, I found uh, claims that it can help with hay fever, diabetes, menopausal and menstruation symptoms, obesity, and dry eyes. And I'm not going to leave you on the edge of your seat. There is no evidence that royal jelly will help you with any of these issues or any others. Uh, people do take it. There, You can buy it very easily. But from every scientific study I could find, there there is no, 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 no evidence that they actually can help you in, a, in any meaningful way. So... Um, you know, I mean, Albert was right. There's no adverse effects to consuming royal jelly and giving it to your baby, but it's also not going to do anything for you. So you probably shouldn't take it, you know, but that's just me. I'm not a doctor. Talk to your doctor about your, your, yes. <laughs> you taking royal jelly. Uh, yes. The- talk, talk to your doctor about taking royal jelly. Talk to you, to your doctor, your child's doctor <laughs> before you even think about giving it to an infant. And in general, don't get your parenting advice from um, from a horror or sci-fi anthology series. Yeah. I, I can say very clearly that you shouldn't give most things to an infant child. I can just say that very, yeah. very, very simply. Um, so there are a couple of, you know, adverse uh, uh, um, issues that can arise by taking royal jelly. But it's it's just this typical allergic stuff. You can get hives, mm-hmm. asthma, uh, or, or even anaphylaxis, which, you know, could be life-threatening and, and are very bad things. But it's just st- standard allergy stuff. So, yeah, it's not going to hurt you, probably. But you probably shouldn't take it because it's not going to help you either. So, so, so don't worry about it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this uh, this episode is curious, though, because it, it does seem to be looking at there are at least a couple of themes that I see in it. I mean, one, like you mentioned, a lot of these stories have something about um like strange relationships between men and women. Mm-hmm. And on this one, this one in particular, it's like the man is taking over part of the mother's role and he messes it up so badly that he's turning the child into another species or some sort of a hybrid. Yeah. Uh there's that. And then there's also the fact that it is it, it deals with the consumption of an animal product and sort of paranoia over that, which is kind of interesting to think about because we as humans consume a lot of animal products. Uh, you think of, of, of the, the baby's bottle of milk example, for example, you know, if you're, t- if you're, if a baby is consuming, well, we're going to be talking about formula in these cases, but uh, just the basic human consumption of cow milk, mm-hmm. uh, the human consumption of various other animal products. Um, we just take most of that for granted in, in our in our culture. Most people don't really give this a second thought, uh, or, or and many of us don't for large portions of our life uh, lives. But uh, in, but in this case, it's like oh, we're, we're focusing on, on on the bee products here, and the idea that this thing that plays a specific role in the life cycle of the bee, what if, what if in consuming it, it also changed our life cycle? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's speculative fiction, and uh, I think it's very successful because it's based partially in reality, but then partially, of course, not on reality at all. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. no, I think it was very successful, fun little story, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad we actually explored both of these. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they kind of paired well together with these, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
humans interacting with uh, with with uh, what what could be seen as an alien species to them, whether it be a bee or a giant thera crab. Is that what it was called? <laughs> uh, th- uh, thanapod. Thanapod. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, they they, they complemented each other well. They, they, this was a good good little pairing of uh, anthology episodes. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, the other one about the the royal jelly episode here is that it seems like this is a template that could easily be used and reused in other anthologies like ba- like basically the the misapplication of some sort of a folk remedy mm-hmm. uh, using an animal product with monstrous results. Like you could imagine a scenario that involves the local smoothie shop right. and I don't know turning someone into um, uh, an avocado person. I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Something yeah. more monstrous than that. But right. uh, it seems like a good template. Well, especially because I, I think there's the smallest, smallest element of reality to this. Like, for example, I've heard stories of people when they were on a primarily carrot-based diets that their skin turns, mm-hmm. starts to turn a little orange because of that element that is that is found in the carrot. And it's like, yeah, you shouldn't have too much of that. It can affect your appearance. So yeah, there, there's like a, a, a tiny, tiny element of reality that, yeah, speculative fiction really, you know, thrives on. You can really <laughs> blow that out of proportion. Oh, and then, of course, the human um, impulse at times to take something that that is said to have uh, health, uh, some sort of health benefit, and may well have some health benefit, but then go so all in on it right. uh, that you have harmful results. Like I remember researching an episode on pickling at one point and running across people that, on, on one hand, you have plenty of people who are like, "Hey, pickled products are great. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, this is uh, these are great traditions from culinary history, but also they have health benefits." And then inevitably, you find like one person, at least one person out there, that's like, "I only eat pickled things," yeah. <laughs> and even some pickling enthusiasts are like i don't know about that That, that's maybe a bit too far uh coincidentally when i was watching uh uh, this this episode it was airing on freebie which is a uh, free streaming service with commercial breaks and uh i coincidentally saw multiple ads for protein powders and supplements while watching this episode All right. Well, we're going to go and close out this episode here, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have thoughts about these two particular uh, anthology series or the uh, specific episodes that we discussed. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have other favorites from the the vast catalog of horror anthologies, either series or particular episodes that you think should be taken into account uh, next year uh, when the anthology of horror rolls back around, let us know. Um, just a reminder that, uh, well, first of all, yes, Joe, Joe's going to be out for a little bit here and, uh, and, but he will return. And in the meantime, we're still going to bust out some new episodes. Uh, our core episodes come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Monday, listener mail, Wednesday, a short form artifact or monster fact on a Friday, weird house cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. And yeah, thanks to uh, Seth Nicholas Johnson for not only producing the show as he normally does, but also jumping in and uh, serving as guest co-host. Happy to be here. Happy to fill in for uh, Joe while he's gone for the next uh, little bits. And uh, yeah, if, if you for some reason like listening to, to me talk, you can find me on Rusty Needles Record Club. It's my weekly podcast about music that I do. Go check that out if you want it. I'm sure I'll mention it more while I'm around. But if you want to talk to this podcast, Podcast, stuff to blow your mind, please reach out to us at contact at stuff to blow your mind. Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 